This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm Scott Barho, Three Pillars Chief Evangelist and your host, and we have a special episode for you today as I'm joined by Jessica Hall, VP of Design at CoStar Group, alongside Three Pillars CEO David DeWolf. I get to talk to them about living the product mindset. David and Jess are co-authors of a book called The Product Mindset, Succeed in the Digital Economy by Changing the Way Your Organization Thinks. For this episode, we'll cover what Jess has learned from putting the product mindset into practice at, at CoStar Group, what Jess and David have learned about the product mindset in three years since the book was published, and much more. Jess and David, welcome to the Innovation Engine, or probably better said, welcome back to the Innovation Engine. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Jess, let's uh, let's start with this. Um, what have you been up to uh, during the two years at CoStar uh, Group? And and congratulations, by the way. I see that CoStar Group just got accepted into the S&P 500. Yeah, just last month we got that uh, notice. That was pretty exciting. So um, when I was at Three Pillar, we were many time Inc. 5000 and S&P 500. So it's kind of neat to have the experience of being in both organizations. I did a really weird thing in October of uh, 2020. I told my parents that I was going into commercial real estate in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> so totally huge asset class, definitely getting decimated by commercial real estate. So let's go there. That sounds like a really good idea. That sounds like, that sounds like your kind of challenge. <laughs> that, that sounds like Jess, doesn't that, it? Yeah, yeah, it, it that, really that, does. That totally works. Yeah. And so what, what really drew me... Um, to the organizations. One of the things is I'd been in DC Tech my entire career, but I'd never heard of Coaster Group. And I imagine a lot of folks haven't, but chances are you've used a Coaster Group branded product. So um, Coaster Group started over 30 years ago with our founder and CEO, Andy Florence. And he had an option to buy a commercial property, but he was trying to figure out if it was a good deal. And right now we think, oh my gosh, there's so much information about how we buy everything. If you want to buy a car, if you want to buy a used car, uh, shout out to our good friends, Carfax. If you want to buy a house, if you want to buy, you know, headphones, and there's a million reviews, so much information is out there in the world about how these things are and how they're performing and what's going on with prices. Well, back then that didn't happen in commercial real estate. You didn't know who was in the building. You didn't know what they were paying. You didn't know what was happening in the area. And so it's this entirely transparent, you know, opaque marketplace where nobody knows what's going on. And then a bunch of people have their own researchers calling, trying to get that information. And what CoStar Group really did is democratize that information by being having this centralized research team that would go out and collect this and then make it available to all the brokers. It makes the market more transparent. It makes it more efficient and more fair. And that really enables everybody who's acting in that market marketplace to be more successful. And that's the cornerstone of CoStar. So whether or not you're trying to lease a building, you're trying to buy or sell a building, chances are you are going to touch our data. But also, if you're going to rent a building, use apartments.com. Or if you're going to buy a house using homes.com. Or you're going to your your residential real estate agent using HomeSnap to interact with our customers. So really, we sit at the nexus of all that, connecting to people, to information and, and opportunity. And I thought, what an interesting place to go to, to use data, to connect people with insight, to help them make decisions. So um, 
I know you all have bought houses. <laughs> and so multiply that by about 10. And that's the kind of complexity and the kind of dollar amounts we're talking about when you're doing a commercial real estate transaction. So you really want to know your data and information. And we really provide that to folks. So the good news is we don't actually do the buying and selling. We just help people with the information part, which whether the market's going up or down, we're still good. <laughs> <laughs> the information is valuable both 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 directions. No matter what you're doing, you need data. So, so can we push it a little bit more into into what you've been doing at CoStar Group uh, specifically during your your last couple of years there? Yeah, so it's a pretty familiar story, right? You have organizations that grow through acquisition, and you have a product that's been around for a while. What is that likely going to enable? You know, what's going to happen there is we're going to have an experience that's really fractured, where you're going to have a lot of different product areas. And, well, it sort of works this way on this product area, and it sort of works that way on this product area, and it sort of does this other thing. And you have a bunch of teams that aren't necessarily talking to each other. And so my remit was really to come into the organization and say, okay, let's try to create a more cohesive experience. Let's start up a design system. Let's start having a more design reviews. Let's not start, you know, having different product leaders doing their own thing in areas of the product, but let's pull it all together. And that's been the journey that we've been on. A couple of detours to work on um, some of our other brands. So I mostly work in the commercial real estate area, but occasionally got to spend some time uh, with the folks at Apartments.com and, and Homes.com. And there was a big launch of Homes.com, and we're really excited to see what that's going to do in the future. But for the most part, it's really been about trying to get to understand this experience. How do we make it more cohesive? And they're also launching a bunch of new products. We've launched a new product for commercial lenders to use our data. We've launched a product for people in the hospitality industry that's coming out this um, pretty soon. So if you want to know how your hotels are performing... Um, we uh, that benchmarking product is moving to the CoStar ecosystem. And then we've got some new products coming to help different people look at prospecting and um, decision-making. So lots of new product development as well as uh, trying to make a cohesive, um, more internationalized, more consistent product. Jess, such a fascinating example of a perfect company for the digital economy, right? It's all about information. It's all about commercializing and democratizing this data and finding new ways to to leverage this information-rich environment um, in new ways to serve clients and their needs. You talked about the M&A and how it's driving some complexity in the need for your role. What about the legacy of the business? Has it always been a digital business? Or if you look back, is there some element of digital transformation as well that's taken place? The core business, as I understand it, because I wasn't there 30 years ago, uh, (laughs) it started digitally native. That's amazing. Like, Pretty basic. Like I think wow. I think Andy actually wrote the first version in his dorm room wow. at Princeton, <laughs> and um, and and really started from a digitally native company. Now they're in a couple of acquisitions, and one specifically that I know about, they did start with mostly delivering an Excel. Hmm. And I think anybody in B two B product management will tell you where there is an Excel that runs a business, there is an opportunity. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that particular one was being delivered via Excel. But, you know, as I understand it, the core product really grew up um, being digitally native. And I don't, you know, it did replace books. It's like back in the day. Sure. And, and I think it, there were there were kind of these, as I understand it, these kind of printed bounded books that would go around and the brokers would buy in order to get information. But... Mm-hmm. You know, it's not tremendously useful. Now, 
maybe back then the commercial real estate sector was more uh, stable. But what we've seen in the last two years is uh, we have regular reports from our economists. And those those graphs that they're putting out every week, they're pretty squiggly. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot is changing really quickly. And so those old ways of doing things, or I also think the buyer has changed, where maybe in the past you would have... Uh, you know, if you were working with an agent, I'm sure, David, you've worked with plenty of agents if you, you know, rent, gotten real estate over the years, like leasing things, that you're like, okay, they pretty much know what's going on. Now you're like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Data? Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Uh, can I see see the data? And like, what's what's going on with, with the, what's, you know, what's up, what's down? What are the people across the street playing? You're expecting that because I think that's changed. And that's where I think, you know, CoStar came along at a good moment to be like, we're already doing this. And then the expectations have only just fueled the business. Yeah, it's it, that is a great example of a digital, uh, a data-rich, uh, digitally native um, play in the economy. And and so, David, I want to ask you as you think about this. Um, you know, the product mindset is a way of thinking about products that that you've been espousing for years, um, and you know that. Um, you know, my my first interaction with the product mindset was uh, actually a workshop that Jess uh, taught or led with uh, Lindsay Clipping, and and I'm a, I'm a huge believer. But for listeners who haven't read the book or aren't familiar with it, what's the short version of what the product mindset is? Yeah, well, the the product mindset breaks down digital products and really describes first and foremost three characteristics that make digital products different from other types of software. Okay. And then on top of those three characteristics, it says if you want to honor those and have a successful product, here are three principles for thinking that allow you to make trade off decisions, judgment calls in the moment as you're executing to optimize towards having a thriving, successful product. Okay. So those three characteristics are first and foremost, if you think about a software product that is something that is driving the revenue and the growth of a business and engaging with their customers, it's a product. It is what is being transacted to drive value between the business and the consumer or the business and the the business customer that they have. And so a digital product must self-fund. It's got to create its own value chain, not just optimize the value chain of an existing product in the market. And that's fundamentally different than other types of software. The second thing about a product is that a product has to be chosen. Um, It has to be something that others say, hey, I need to, I want to use that. Um, Other types of software run in an IT closet or is mandated to employees, right? A product has to be so useful, has to be so delightful, has to be so X, Y, Z, that it's chosen and adopted by users and and customers, typically not just users, but people that will pay for it to use it. And then finally, the other reality of product in this digital economy is that digital products are just never done. The expectations of those users is that they're always evolving, they're always changing, they're always providing new value. And that, again, is fundamentally different from other types of software. And so those are the three characteristics that sit at the base of the product mindset and say, if you're building a digital product, if you want to be successful, first and foremost, you have to embrace these realities. And then secondly, once you embrace those realities, 
here's three hints. Here's three guiding principles for how you and your teams should think. Number one, minimize time to value, right? If you're driving and self-funding your own product, you want to be taking small bets. You want to be releasing early and you want to be releasing often and minimizing the time it takes to build something, put it out and derive value from it. Hopefully economic value, but there's also preconditions to economic value, right? Before somebody pays for it, will they actually use it, right? Getting that feedback, right? Feedback is a currency of value, but ultimately that economic value is what you're looking to minimize the time to value for. Um, the second thing then is if a product has to be chosen, you need to build to actual needs. So what is the problem, the pain point that the customer is dealing with? What is the value you are driving to them to drive that, that adoption and that usage? And then finally, if a product is always evolving, you need to excel at change. And so those three principles um, are so critical and, and core and, and complementary to those characteristics of the product. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting, you know, uh, Jess, you as, as co-author uh, with David on that on that book, um, I'm curious to hear from you how, how your thoughts on the product mindset have evolved in your work at, at CoStar Group. You know, versus being on the outside, right? Uh, looking in on these companies, um, how how has that evolved in your journey there? So when I knew this was what we were going to talk about, I started to write it, and I have nine themes and a double sided <laughs> sheet of paper. <laughs> so so you've had a couple of aha moments. I, I had a, a couple of aha moments. I'm sure David will be shocked to learn that early on I was entirely too aggressive. <laughs> Neither knows. of us are shocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Par for the course. I, I, I think I remember actually taking a walk with you in yeah. between Three Pillar and Co Star yeah. Group talking about that. We so actually, uh, I, I do recommend this for anyone. If you can get a little time in between jobs, it's a good thing to do. And Scott and I went and hiked uh, the Billy Goat Trail, which is on the Potomac River. And you you do a lot of like scrambling over rocks and stuff. So we had this very long conversation where we were doing this, and Scott was like. In classic Scott fashion, we say, you know, take your time, understand what the landscape is, all the players, and really be thoughtful and take your I'm like, good, that sounds great, because I never do that. And 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 we had this whole plan that we completed on our multi-mile hike in uh <laughs> Great Falls. And then three hours in, I got asked to make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> you threw with, all that away. With with uh, I think I had a grand total, and Scott, who might have complained for a very long time about onboarding, I got 45 minutes. <laughs> that was it. 45 minutes about benefits. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> and so it was very clearly, I was like, oh, wow. Okay, everyone needs me to make a decision. Great. So in, instantly I did fall back to the consultant model, which is I can't make a decision. I can convene the right people and like put them through a process to make hmm. a decision. So it was useful that I had that. Um, but I think, you know, as as you're going through the benefit of being in a company like Three Pillar is that you get a wide view of what's happening in the world. You get to see how you take an idea like the product mindset and apply it in lots of different organizations and in different industries at different stages of the life cycle. And it gives you a lot of interesting patterns. And then you arrive mm -hmm. in an organization and you're no longer on the inside. You got to get in that boat and pick up an oar and row. A lot of times when people in organizations come in from the outside, they're kind of, well, you guys this and you guys that. And we actually had someone who joined our team and we made him put money into the happy hour jar every time he called us you. <laughs> like, no, 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 there's no you. It's it's we, it's us. Mm -hmm. And so... Welcome to the party. Welcome mm -hmm. to the party. 
And I think it's also one of the the tricks in any organization is that you can have, one of the first lessons was, listen, you know, they don't necessarily know what the product mindset is. They're not necessarily going to learn all the ins and outs of it. This is not an organization where everyone is deeply steeped and lean and agile and design thinking and all these methodologies. It's not really core. It's not what the culture was. So the first thing was like, okay, I got to meet them where they are, which is I'm going to focus on a smaller amount of things. So initially I was like, here's 20 things I want to change and all these. And so like, okay, we're going to start with this one thing. It's like, we're just going to have regular conversations about design. And in those regular conversations, the first thing you need to tell me is why the heck we're doing this. So you just start with what what need is this? And so I never said, oh, there's this principle solved for need. It's like, hey, so why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. It's a and great, great small way to to start to bring that into really the conversation. Simple. Yeah. Why are we doing this? Okay. Who is it serving? Great. How do you know? And then just trying to trying to say like because one thing I think where people come in from the outside, a lot of consultants will come in and say, "Here is the holy grail. Here is the whole thing. Here is the whole." And and invariably, when I would teach people about the product mindset, they would say, "Oh, how do I put this into play in my organization?" And like, well. <laughs> <laughs> the real is it's the smart it's the, the smallest possible thing, which really came with so um so what are you hoping this is gonna accomplish? Um I think a lot of times I try not to ask people why. I think it puts them in a very defensive position. Hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> if my kid makes a mess, you know, in the kitchen, I was like, Why did you do that? <laughs> um, so why that doesn't get you a good response. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. I think everybody gets put when you say, Why is that? Almost everyone gets put back in that thing where one of their parents is mad at them. So it says, hmm. so so what are we what are we what are we doing here? What's this all about? How do we how do we know this is gonna work? And so if you just start with like asking some a couple questions and kind of letting them go, it's like, whoa, there's there's this thing. Would you like to try it? Um, there's this idea, would you would you like to, you know, to, you know, try this thing? And I think, well, one thing about me that is uncommon is that. Well, A, I'd read a book and people had read it. And I wrote a book, sorry. And um, I did a TEDx talk and people had watched it. So it's really weird. Whenever I go places, people know things about me mm-hmm. that I haven't said. <laughs> and, um, and so I came in. So people already kind of knew a little bit about what I was about. And then mm-hmm. initially I was like, we're going to do design sprints. I'm like, oh man, that was wrong. <laughs> okay. Okay, we're not going to do We're not ready for design sprints. We're not going to do this. But I'm just gonna start asking questions. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say, okay, we can do that design work, but why don't we have this conversation first? And have you written this down? And so just trying to take some time and just getting people to think a little bit differently. Hmm. Um, that was one of the big changes and and resets and just finding a place to place a big bet. Hmm. Like I could probably only place one really big bet in the organization because. Um, I was really given the mandate to fix the experience and make it consistently. My big bet was on a design system. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I had to do is tell my product manager, I'm like, right, I'm reducing capacity for design by 25% because we're going to build a design system. And then I had to go sweet talk engineering to give me some resources. And so, you know, the first thing was like, I, I find Which I of do course this- you were successful at. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of, mostly. and uh, we, We've seen your you work in magic here, so yes. That's awesome. And, and so we were able to like say, I'm going to I'm gonna pull this. I'm not going to change everything, but I need to make this one that I'm going to bet on a design system. Mm. 
I pulled out the designers who seemed the most engaged in that conversation. I found the engineers through like notes and corrects and some of them appeared to say, hey, I'm going to do this. This is a big deal. And so just working the network, found the right engineers, found the right designers. Meanwhile, we were all remote at this mm-hmm. point. We are back in the office now and we have been uh, for a while. Um, but so pull everybody together and say, we're going to do this thing. Here's the plan. I, this is my big bet. I will put whatever needs to and make this happen and then talk to whoever I need to. So I spent a lot of time focusing on one big bet, which was launching that. Uh, and we call it our design system Cosmos because you have to name them. I don't know why. <laughs> um, it's branding. IBM has Carbon. <laughs> Salesforce has Lightning. Hmm. Uh, Spotify has gone through about three design systems. Uh, our friends at apartments.com had the a design system Mortar. Um, and so the person I put in project, she's like, I don't want to design it. It's not really a thing. Should I name it? I'm like, name it. And then she comes back about 20 minutes later and she says, Cosmos. Okay, tell me more. I'm very excited about this. And she said, well, we're co-star and there's a star in our logo. And um, a Cosmos is a well-ordered whole of the universe. I'm like, okay, we got a star theme. We got a name that talks about where order foes. She's super excited about this and I want to feel it. So it's like, boom, it's Cosmos. We are going to launch Cosmos. <laughs> this is it. And someone said, oh, this. It's like, no, no, we're talking about Cosmos. And so you start being the language police like really quickly. <laughs> um, and so we laid that out. And we got, you know, pulled it together, hook and crook, cut it down significantly from what we wanted. And we got that launched. That's kind of like the first pancake, you know, mm. when you make the first pancake, it's not quite what you needed, but hey, we got the first pancake. So like, then we got to adjust that and like figure out how we grew it. But that was really the place of, I'm going to, I'm going to make one really big bet and it's going to be on that. And then my smaller bet was about how do I start to change behavior mm. in the organization? So before you go to your small bet. Go back to the big bet, because you talked about how you got it done. You talked about the what of what it was, but why? If you had one big bet, why was it that was the bet you chose? How did you come to that decision? Because that was what they hired me to do. That was the number one project on the top of the mind of our CEO. That was the one thing that he wanted. And if I could give him that, then it opened up the possibilities for a lot of other things. So if we could start saying, we're going to make some really big progress on there, we're going to stand these things up, that was going to unlock. It was about unlocking things. It was about unlocking, you know, establishing trust that we could do things. It was about having something that was going to reduce the amount of time we had to spend on little, like, changes. Because if you have mm-hmm. a design system, it speeds up the design process. Mm-hmm. We had a very... Uh, when I arrived, engineers and designers didn't really talk to each other. Everything flowed through product. So it was a way to build the relationship with engineering. So like we're building a partnership with engineering. We're addressing a key strategic priority for our CEO. And meanwhile, because you're doing a design system, you're having any nook or crook of the product. You're going to learn the product. But I will say, two years later, there are still things I'm learning about this product. <laughs> to call a product is silly. It's actually yeah, it's, like It's nine. an ecosystem of products. It's a yeah. whole ecosystem right. of products. So it's a lot of different things. So it was kind of like this one thing gives me a lot of opportunity to make progress. And so that's why I put all my chips on it. But it's also, a, it's a, it, you know, to your, to your earlier point, um, it's also a, a systemic bet because design, not just the words design system, but 
but even in terms of culture and, and conversation, right? It elevates the conversation. We're no longer talking about, oh, what's the RGB code for the call to action button? We're now talking about what's the psychology of the user? What are high stakes transactions in the software? What are, right? Like you're able to move the conversation up a notch, get towards the why. Why are we doing this? What is the impact we're hoping to have? Get it and then get into the psychology of it. Um, it, it moves you in that direction as well. Is, have you experienced that at CoStar? Is that happening? It's definitely been helpful because we don't have to talk about what the button colors are. Right. Like those are the button colors. There's And they have roles. So it's like that it changes the conversation and it also enables, um, I'm just fortunate to have, not only do I have a great team, but I also have a great group of engineers who really are committed to this and, and lean into it. And they are so persnickety. It's delightful. Um, and that just enabled us to kind of get the people who are really focused on that together and focus on that. And then other folks got to start to focus on, yeah, well, what's the, then we could start talking about, okay, well, what's the flow and what are the different pieces and why is this different here? And then we can start to change the conversation a little bit. Um, it has been harder than I thought it was. Hmm. It has taken longer than I thought it was. It has taken more <laughs> controlling than I thought it would take. But I think, you know, I think that's one of the things you know, when you come into an organization as a, as a consultant or someone in, in the organization, the world of three pillar, that the meter is running, right? So you've, you've minutes. You know, most people will give a full-time employee a while to get on board. Not me, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like as a consultant, you had minutes. And so you had to just get in there and go. And here it's like, well, we've actually got to, you know, whatever we do, we're responsible for it. And we have to be able to maintain and grow and scale it. And we have to do it in a way that we don't scorch the earth. Like right. we are, we are getting stronger on the other side of that. Right. Um, and so that was definitely figuring through how much change could I actively push in at once um, was a little bit tricky because, you know, that's not what I'm just changing. Like HR is doing some stuff and other teams are doing some stuff and all of that change is trying to funnel through the same place. Well, I got to figure which one am I going to try and put through hmm. and I got to be willing to, you know, go on it for a while because it's just not going to happen. I can't just say, here's the thing, and it happens. It, it never it never quite works out that way. Right, right. Well, it's kind of interesting to note that a lot of our three-pillar teams have been very sticky with our clients, and which gives us that opportunity to build trust, to see it through, we are, you know, our hands are dirty in it. We're with you on the on that journey. So not, you know, while while you a lot of times were sent in as a you know as a consultant and you've got minutes, a lot of our teams get years yep. um, to help our clients get better at product development and applying the product mindset in their context, which is really it's a fabulous opportunity. Um, but it also raises the stakes, right? Like it's you're you're sticking around with those results. Um, you yes. don't get to just uh, give great advice and walk away. Yeah, I never. To be fair, I, I never said like, oh, and I'm out. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I always, when I, here's the trick in being a consultant. The answer is already there. Hmm. The answer is already there. The problem is no one's listened to it. The people in the organization probably know what has to happen. They probably have a good sense. But for whatever reason, the right things aren't getting, the right people aren't connecting with the right information, have the right ideas. And what we have to do is sort that out. So they have a, either they don't know what they're doing, which hmm. is nine times out of the problem. <laughs> hmm. It's like, I can't tell you how many times I walked around organizations and the consultant. The first thing I do every time was like, so what are we doing? What are the big priorities for the next three months? And people were like, uh, or they would start laughing at me. That definitely happened. <laughs> or, or they would say like, 
here's some gobbledy strategy, gobbledygook. I'm like, do you know what that means? Not really. And, or it'd be like, CEO says. It's like, all right, okay. Problem number one, nobody knows what they're doing. Hmm. And so all the time when I said, what's my big bet? Cosmos. What's my top priority? Cosmos. What's the main thing I'm doing? Cosmos. Like, uh, this is it. This is the one thing that's on the top of the list. Now we're going to service, we're going to do other stuff. But I was like super clear about what our priorities were mm-hmm. and and made sure that every product manager, when I said, oh yeah, we're not going to work on this thing right now, it's because of what and what the benefit was. So so with that, I think that, um, I mean, that's a perfect segue into this, into this question, which is how do you align Cosmos then with organizational outcomes? Um, because it's just a design system. Um, and while it has all these, you know, good bits and parts, how does this make CoStar Group more successful as an organization? I, I think connecting those dots has to be a part of your your why why Cosmos. Yeah. So what is that? You know, with any legacy product, any organization, that it's really hard to change things. So anything you can do, and you and I have had this conversation. And you made me read that Accelerate book. Mm-hmm. So. You're so boring, oh God, but so, so boring. good. <laughs> and, and so, so boring, but like, so good. Well, that, oh, that's so a new here's one. the thing. Oh, yeah. Nobody ever comes into it. an organization and gets the the fancy job or the kudos for saying, what, what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to make everything run better. But what nine times out of organizations, especially legacy organizations need, is they need things to run better. Hmm. They, the reason why they have no, why it doesn't, everything is hard. Everything takes a really long time. Mm-hmm. Whether you have to deploy and it takes a long time or you have to test or you have to make decisions, or you have to make designs. The thing in so many organizations is they have no time to do excellent stuff or really, because just doing the basic stuff is so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if all you're going to do is say, well, you know what? I'm just going to speed this sucker up. We're going to have less conversations about minutia. We're going to have easier times putting things together. And we're going to make it easier for our engineers to be able to deliver things to our end clients. If all we do is speed the process up and we can put more through it, we have a better chance of being successful. And can I put that against the OKR? Maybe. But I know if I can make things flow more easily through the process and I can focus the conversations on the ones that we need to have, I have a better chance of making it KPA. So it's mm. it's not it's one of those times where you have to say like yeah, I can't exactly measure this, but that's what we should do. You know, I'm struck. I just listened to a podcast from uh, from IDEO, not to plug another podcast, but um, but I was just listening to a podcast on strategy and strategy activation. And I'm, I'm struck by thinking about your design system plus the questions that you ask and how those two things work in tandem. Uh, one without the other isn't necessarily as valuable, right? But if you can create the design system, which which drains the the, the minutia conversations and yeah. creates space for the higher level conversations, and then you're injecting the right questions at the right time, you're forcing the conversation up as you're creating the space for that conversation. Is that, yeah. Does that feel right? Well, that sounds really terrific <laughs> and very logical in reality. It's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> so talk about that. I mean, like, to me, this is, this is an obvious it, yeah. one-two punch. Yeah, yeah. yeah Cosmos. Yeah, I, no, it I, sounds I'm, awesome, I'm right? In. Yeah. I probably wrote something that told somebody to do that very same thing at some point. Um, so, uh, fun fact. Um, you can get mad at people for not doing the things that you expect them to do, but you probably shouldn't. <laughs> And I might have done that. I guess it's like, hey, coming into an organization, I think one of the tricky things in an organization, so is that 
one, a lot of value, and it makes total sense if you spend any time looking at this stuff, is put in this organization on subject matter expertise. And gosh, you really do need it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You really do. I've learned a a lot about triple net leases and 1031 exchanges and what ADR is. And not only do I need to know one area of the business, I need to know all the areas of the business. So Mm. a lot of emphasis is put on that understanding of the data and the industry. Not as much expertise and, and focus has been put on the craft. And you know, Scott's just like super happy about this right now. <laughs> Not as much emphasis was Pushing put on button. the craft of product management and, and design. So it wasn't exactly like a process. There weren't artifacts, you know, templates and things. And so it was like, yeah, do the thing. And they're like, I did this. It's like, oh, wow, that's not what I want at all. And so it was like, okay. So one of the things in that is like, yes, we can start to advance the conversation. But at some point I'm like, I got, I've legit written, this is the checklist that you need for me to begin design. And these are the things I have to have. And we're not going to start What kinds of things are on that checklist? It's that you and I would call it product definition. So it's like, who's it for? Hmm. Why are we doing it? What are we trying to accomplish? Hmm. Where's it going to sit in the product? What are the major features that you need to release? And you need to, a lot of people just tell, talk a lot about what those are. And that's great to have, have that, but I needed it in a more concrete format, but I mm-hmm. wasn't getting it. And so there was this moment of like, well, I can keep asking for something. Or I can be like, can I just have this? Can I have this thing? And can you give it to me in this way? And once I have it, then we can get started. Um, and, you know, just starting to have that kind of like, this is how, this is, these are the terms of engagement. These are the ways that we're going to engage and just start to really funnel that in so that we could have the conversation that I wanted to have. Uh-huh. Instead of the conversation was, I want to do, these are the things that I want to do. And I'm like, uh, no. Because uh-huh. that was the conversation I kept having. I'm like, well, this isn't working. So now I have to get clear on, here's what I need. Uh-huh. And here's what we're trying to accomplish. If you don't give me this, like I'm not gonna. There's not a lot I could do for you. Right, but I. So I'm gonna I'm gonna push you a little bit on that because the Cosmos. Um, you you talked about how that that is gonna make the organization run faster. Yeah, and that's oftentimes what's needed. You also injected these questions like you know the why, and then you, you used upstream thinking just to yeah. cite another book that we both read at the yes. same time. Um, <laughs> you know, upstream by the the Heath brothers, right? Yes. Well, um, it's one of them. I think it's Dan. Okay. Heath. So we so we uh, we talked a lot about upstream, yeah. um, you know, back back when we were working together, and and here you are doing that, right? Like you're also you're saying, okay, well, like I can make the engine run faster and keep producing guesses, and then yeah. you can tell me why it's wrong, or I can go upstream and say, why don't you give me a clearer picture of what you want, and yeah. then as we're going faster, we're also more likely to be closer to the target. Yeah. Um, and then I was less cranky. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why aren't you doing what I want? Oh, right, you don't know what I want. Right, I should probably tell you what I want. And and that was definitely something that we had to do. Uh, along we're going the lines of your both effects on me with Scott and more systems thinking, because that was something I, Scott has pushed me a lot of. Um, the one that I think David will like was, you know, I started as an 18-year-old designer working my way uh, through school. That's how I, I worked I worked at a museum in DC and I worked, I went to school and then I stepped, stayed at the museum. So when I was 18 and I was an intern, I could never tell them, it's like, I'm an intern. It's like, no, I, I'm the, I'm designing this thing. And so I spent so much of the years of my career influencing that I got really, com- I was like, that's what I do. I convince people and I got to sell it and I got to get you on board. And then I came here to Three Pillar and I was like, 
which is a whole nother story. But like <laughs> I I had to go into clients and I had to work with the other people and I had to influence and I had to influence. And I was always trying to sell something. And all of a sudden I stared down something where I'm like, oh, right. I need to decide. Mm. Authority. I am so deeply uncomfortable with authority. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> it's so mm. uncomfortable with authority. Well, and it's interesting because most people think they covet authority when they're they're tired of working through influence, but you'd gotten very comfortable with influence. Well, like. that was what that was my jam, right? Yeah. That's what I did. I didn't learn how to use authority because I didn't have any. <laughs> All of a sudden it's like, uh, you have authority and I hired you to do the thing. And I hired you sometimes to be a dictator. And I was like deeply uncomfortable with that because I'm I'm an influencer. I'm a team player. I'm a collaborator. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow. I have to be like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're just not. It's so uncomfortable. How did that impact your leadership style? So one is just trying to say, reflecting a little bit on when did when was I in with clients who wouldn't make decisions and their whole organization was screaming, just decide, just decide. I'm like, right, I'm that person now. So I can reflect on that and say like, I remember what it was like for the team and where someone's just got to make a call because otherwise we're not going to get anything done. And you can oftentimes live with a bad decision more than no decision. Because uh, it's, it's decision, not hard. You can recover from a bad decision. Right. right? Yeah. You can you can pivot off of, okay, now we know that's wrong. We can, yes. but, but leaving the organization without one is is tough. Yeah. yeah. And so it was kind of realizing, oh, wait, this is what I'm doing. Like these, we're already swirling and I'm I'm making the swirl worse because I'm trying, I, I'm, I'm not making the decision. And so what I would end up doing is make a decision and then try and explain my decision and get everybody okay with it, which would make things go on for longer. And then I, I got to the point where I would say, okay, heard what everybody has to say. Here's what we're doing. And then I have to start counting in my head. I'm like, this is it. One, two, three. Don't say anything. Don't soften your position. Don't back down. Just do the thing. <laughs> don't caveat it. Don't, don't caveat. Yeah. Don't, don't soften. <laughs> don't change. It's like, hold it. Hold it. You, know, you say, listen, if we get some data that is not right, I'm happy to revisit this. Mm -hmm. But go. But based on the information we have right now, this is the best possible decision that I think we can make. And we're going with that. Yeah. Hmm. That's so the burden weird. of leadership. Oh my Good God. for you. So yeah. <laughs> so weird. It's too bad I don't know anybody who has that challenge. Yeah. <laughs> David. <laughs> yeah. Well, one is you can outsource some of that, right? Like you can offload that. If you're if you're doing a good job with um having a design system, having design principles, having objectives, some of that decision making you can outsource. So one of the investments I'm continuing to make, like that was version one of the designs. We ain't got anywhere close, right? So we need to continue to invest in the systems and the things that allow people to make good decisions without having to come to me. I don't want to make every decision here. I don't want to have to do that. But if I don't have things in place to people to make the day, and we're talking about day-to-day -day decisions, does this arrow have a drop down? You know, is that a dash or a button on this or, or a circle on this placard? I don't want to make that decision, but I need a system in place for my team to make a good decision you know, I'm like, you know, I'm trying to think of something. So like, I need, need to, I need to make those decisions where I have to make the gut check, but I also have to invest and in so that the decisions are getting made at the right level. Mm -hmm. And and the, the tricky part about that is that even that delegation and empowerment itself requires a decision because it requires the abstract decision of creating the framework so that other people can make good decisions, right? Um, and deciding who are you delegating it to? Are you creating clarity around who gets to make the decision? Are you creating the parameters so that they're comfortable making that decision, right? So many aspects fall into that, um, that it is a continual 
decision-making process of how do you continually improve? So, um, David, yeah, we got to write a bonus chapter. Because <laughs> that's what we didn't put in. On decision-making. Yeah. Yes. What we missed, I think it's funny because we did a bonus chapter around the time the pandemic happened. And it was all about, we need to get better at communicating intent and objectives. And I think that the one thing that the, you know, COVID stuff and the great resignation and a lot of these other things we're seeing is that decision-making and how you equip people to make decisions is broken in a lot of companies. So like people are like, so the only thing they have now to feel good about the progress they're making is that a butt is in a seat typing, right? And then you don't know. And so what I think in a lot of organizations is that ability to know, think about where is that, or where is that organization, where should that decision be made? And have we equipped those people with the ability to make that decision and the people above them and the people above them? That's a huge missing piece. Like I, I saw that in, in so many clients and heck, I have perpetrated that on my own team um, in the last two years. And I think that is a piece of understanding, like how do you create that architecture of decision-making and all the pieces and parts and necessary for that to flow through? Otherwise, all those decisions have to come back to you. And so, you know, that's going to grind the gears intentionally. Everything's going to take a while because now we have to come back to me to make a decision about, you know, does that open in a new tab or is it a modal or is that a dash or it's like, that's not the right decision. And so if that's happening and you're involved in those, like the question has to think, who's the right person to make that decision and how do I equip them to make that decision? Or if they're making decisions you really don't like, well, Something's there's another wrong. decision you there's have to make. There's another decision right. you have to make. And I, I think that's I think there's a couple things maybe. I don't know if they're in the product mindset, but I think there are some things missing and that one is really grinding the gears right now because so many organizations are kind of relying on, you know, without necessarily being co-located physically in the same space, like you're doing a lot of things so there's a lot less structure and then people are waiting and they're not quite sure. And some of that's because they're afraid, right? And they're worried about, but I think there's a lot of decision-making. How do we make decisions? And I remember being in a client where I can remember the slide clear as day. I'm like, every decision is the decision that is raising to an altitude of the C-suite. And maybe, maybe 20% of these should be C-suite decisions, but they're all coming up here. And so you know, trying to work through with that particular team of how do we drive those decisions down? And the problem is they're like, hey, make decisions. And the team would make, of course, they're going to make a decision that you don't want because you didn't give them any guardrails. And then, then, oh, I don't like that decision. Bam, smack the hand. They won't make another decision again. The whole cares start grinding. Right, right. Well, and, and, you know, the ability to distribute decision-making is usually a function of how far you're willing, you have trust, and I think that one of the ways of building trust is also putting, if, if you assume positive intent and you give them the tools and resources and exposure that they need to make wise decisions, then you can start to think about an ecosystem that, that runs healthier. But if you, if you just yo-yo decision-making, right? Like, it's like, I expect you to make decisions. Oops, you made a wrong one. No more. Um, <laughs> then I'll, you're never going to get to that high-functioning distribution of, of trust and, and decision-making. Yeah, one of the best um, mentors that I had. Um, and I, for many years have taught skiing and my ski school director used to say, you know, you got to teach, you have, 
one of the ways he would say is you got to help teach people how to think. And so we'd say, well, when I'm in this situation, here's what I like to do. And, oh, well, you you know, you would watch you teach a lesson and say, well, you know, what you could do is this other thing. And so like you're you're starting to talk through, why did I make, so I had a bunch of interns this summer, super fun. Um, I had uh, three design interns. We also had some product interns and like a data person on the floor. And so like all these interns come, it's like, okay, we would start doing this. And I look over them, like looking at me, I'm like, right. Okay, here's what I saw. And here's why I said to do this. And here's what I'm hoping is going to. So it's like, it forced me to be much more explicit about like, here's what I'm doing. And that for me, going back to the authority thing is like, I'm explaining my judgment I'm not opening the door for you to like, um, like for us to relitigate. We're not relitigating this thing. I'm just helping you understand it. And sure, like you know, if I'm wrong, which happens, uh, we'll change it. But I think it is, you know, those types of things. If I've got to make my decision making process a lot more transparent and open, so these other folks can now start. To, and I need the tools, and then they can start making decisions. And again that makes things flow easily because they're not waiting for me. Mm-hmm. Well, one, I, I have a proposal. I'm actually curious to get both your thoughts on this because I do have a proposal for another chapter of the book. Love um, it. Uh, here we go. This, this will be fun. I'm sorry. I'm, I know I'm way off script here, but uh, um, one of the things that I learned from you, Jess, was um, the importance of, of UX research um, and how important it is to mine for the insights that ultimately can make the difference between a great product, a mediocre product, or one that just doesn't, doesn't make it. And, um, and, and one of the things that, that got me thinking about organizationally is how often, you know, the strategy is the CEO said, right? And how many organizations I've been in that have been like that. And then the ability to actually take insights into the organization, and this builds on some of the concepts that we talked about around uh, Bob Mesta and demand-side selling. What if I could tell the company as a product leader, tell the company things they don't know about their own customers or users? And be, and then this is where that that minimize time to value, start the learning process, be engaged with real customers with these pain points and start the learning. Um, it's not going to happen, you know, it can't, I mean, you can do some learning before you start building, but you ultimately have to have real contact and try to actually solve these problems in real ways. And so I, I, I wonder if uh, another addendum to the product mindset isn't excelling at change and minimizing time to value and, and understanding need more deeply. And as a product, and as we talked about things like product-led growth and things like that, like taking the product team and repositioning in the organization from an executor of orders to a source of insight um, and and even a source of how to better support customers and lead customers to use your product for its intended mm-hmm. uh, purpose. One of the one of the things I love about the way you asked that question is you use the word insight. So often we talk about gathering intelligence from the market in terms of feedback. And I think the word insight implies seeing inside something at a deeper level than what is just said. And one of the struggles that I really have with the big, big, big push for, you know, customer research and the voice of the customer and all this is that people want to go just collect what is said and then pass it on like it's a direction. And innovation doesn't actually happen that way, right? Innovation happens from those deep insights of getting to the bottom of what's actually going on, what the real pain point is, what the real need is, and then using intuition and using problem-solving techniques 
in order to take that insight and actually solve the need in a new and different way. And and I think there's a real skill set there that we have to be careful when we talk about going and listening to the voice of the customer, not just to, to ping pong back and forth of, they said this, they said that. And it's the exact opposite of the ivory tower. We don't want an ivory tower either, right? Innovation doesn't come from just barking orders from on high either, right? Um, and it is that art in the middle that you're talking about that I think is just so powerful. Yeah, I hate to say... Uh... I believe in it because I've been in so many cases where I'm like, this is what we're going to do. And I'm like, no, that didn't work. But I hate to say that I think a lot of companies are sharpening their pencils. And I think a lot of companies are ixnaying um, some of the research functions. And I think they're going to suffer for that. I, I in, in part, I think because there's a, there's a fusion. One, I think to David's point, they're not seeing the value is because they're getting the raw materials and not the the actionable intelligence. And some in some cases, I think there's a there's a translation layer missing between, hey, we went out and talked to customers and we did really quality research. Now, how do I put that into action such that we can get value out of it? That's missing. And I remember going many rounds with our UX research team here, which is like, you have to give me a message I can sell because this isn't it. And so we got to fast, flexible, and focused. As our, and I still remember it two years mm-hmm. later. It's like, that's the kind of research we do. That's the kind of value we create. And so we really had to hammer in on how are we going to get to a place where we can get customers something that they really value. So I think some organizations are sharpening their pencils and look, you know, because they're not quite sure where things are going. And they're going to go through. And I think that organizations that haven't quite figured out how to, what that translation layer is and how you get actionable intelligence, I'm afraid that's going to get get cut. And that's going to hurt a lot of organizations because they're going to fall back on within the absence of that research. What do you end up doing is what does the powerful person think? Mm-hmm. And they're not always right. That's right. Sometimes they are. I yeah. mean, sometimes they are. But even in, but, and to David's point too, and I think it's, it's so important to realize that the customer doesn't know what the product looks like or what the solution to their problem looks like necessarily. They, they oftentimes can talk a lot about what they don't like. They can talk about what they want, what they wish for, and they might even try to use feature language um, to describe that. But if you get into their why, then you open up the aperture for innovation because they can't imagine all the possible ways that problem could be solved. Yeah, um, I, I, the the really simple analogy that I love to always point to on this is is like if you just really dumb it down. If Henry Ford went out and asked customers for feedback, right? God, it I was, Henry I want Ford a faster in. horse, I want a faster horse, I want a faster horse, right? Mm-hmm. And the automobile never would come about, right? That's right. Um, and, and it takes, yes, there is a customer feedback of going and looking at what does the everyday man or woman need in terms of transportation and understanding why they're asking for the faster horse mm-hmm. and, and all of the ramifications of that, that can absolutely fuel a better car. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it, but you can't just uh, you know pair it. You can't user feedback your way to uh, to yeah. something brand new, exactly. a new category. Exactly. So okay, this is what I call getting Henry Forded because <laughs> someone's going to pop up this Henry Ford quote. Sorry, I don't work for him anymore. So I'm gonna do this. Um, not like I wouldn't have when I did. Okay, so here's the thing: there is a, HBR published a great article about this a while ago. There's no evidence that Henry Ford ever said that. But if no. you go back and think, but it's still right. But, <laughs> kind of. So when the Model T came out, what Henry Ford realized is that people had a problem, is that they wanted to go and experience the outdoors and and get around, and they wanted a reliable mode of transportation that didn't poop a lot and that didn't kick you and potentially kill you. And so 
you know, yes, if he had asked what they needed, but it was, it's kind of, I think that is surface level understanding. Mm -hmm. And and that's where we get into problems. It's like, you know, and Steve Jobs saying, has, there's a version of a Steve Jobs quote, because everybody wants to quote Steve Jobs, which you're not, by the way. But I think what, (laughs) if you go a little bit deeper, you can kind of understand what were people really trying to achieve. And I Mm -hmm. think Bob Mesta's work, and so demand side selling is not about sales. Mm Mm-hmm. I love that book. I recommend it to everybody. It's not about sales. It's a jobs to be done book. Yeah. And so it's really about how can you get below the surface level stuff of, oh, I want this, I want that, to like, what are we really trying to do here? And what's motivating you? And what's, what's limiting you? What's the you? point of struggle? What's the point of awareness that I want a product to solve this need for me? Um, yeah. No. It's, and that's it's, where people are. And that, that's the thing where people are going. You got to go to that slightly deeper place to get a fuller understanding. And that's where the insight lies. And most people aren't doing that. And that's why we use the word insight, not feedback. That's right. Well, data is not insight, right? Data is data. Um, And we have to to look at that data in order to drive hypotheses, which then get us to insights. Interesting. All right. So Jess, we, I know we could talk all day, um, and, and have (laughs) on several occasions. Um, but, uh, but I'd love to close out with a a quick speed round, a couple of, couple of speed round questions. Are you ready? Yep. All right. Where are you more comfortable in front of a whiteboard trying to hone in on a BHAG, uh, a big hairy goal or shredding some fresh powder on the slopes in Vermont? You say that like I can't do both at the same time. I, I, I can't I, do the white part. I know too well that you can. Yes. Well, so you ski down and then you discuss ideas on the chairlift up. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're just not going to choose, huh? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Avoided the question. Um, number two, <laughs> it has been a while since the product mindset came out. Have you had the itch to write another book? So I'm currently working on a little bit of a nerdy research project, uh, but I, which I'll tell you about in a second. And, and I do have an idea for another book that I, <laughs> like I have time. Um, so the research project I'm kind of interested in is so many times I've been the first leader in my function in an organization. In fact, I think almost every leadership role I've ever taken, I was the first whatever in the company I was in. Um, and I think that there's something pretty broken about how we launch leaders. A lot of times, this is about onboarding. So onboarding is about understanding how the organization functions today and how you fit in. And when you're the first leader of your kind that is there to do something that is different and help grow the company, you don't need, it's not about onboarding. It's not about fitting in. It's about preparing the road to be something different. And so I have this notion, like, I don't think we need to onboard new leaders. I think we need a different mindset shift. And that's towards how do we launch leaders? Like we launch a product and we think about the goals and we know that this has to be a cross-functional effort. And so I'm kind of talking to some folks and playing around with that idea. And if I ever get the chance to write a book again, the one I think I'd want to write is like, would be called the turnaround job. Because I think a lot of people talk about how do you get out of the garage or how do you scale up or, um, but how do you turn around a ship? Like that's something like the product is not working and the business is kind of broken. And like, there's a lot of people who tell you how, but not a lot of people will tell you like what actually happened to the people in that situation. How did they actually do it in real life? 
And I'd love to do that at some point, but I don't know when in the heck I'm going to have any time. <laughs> well, well, that, I mean, that you and I have joked often that, uh, you know, if, if both of us encountered a, a, a building on fire, you would run into it and I would stand outside wondering why yes. it's on fire, um, which is, which is a perfect, it's so true. Uh, it's so true, isn't so it? true but um, and she's up there and, you know, babies are coming out the windows and, you know, and I'm just still like, well, I don't understand. Why is it on fire? That's silly. So here's the question. What would I do? <laughs> I don't know. What would you do? Marshall, the troops. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. And prioritize. The, my, one of my favorite things about David, you're like, David, three things. Priorities now. And he will, he doesn't hesitate. He's no. like, one, two, three, boom. No, and he always like, says, and it's always three, it's too. Always it's three. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jess, thank you so much. Uh, this has obviously been a joy. Um, it's always good to see you and, and great to hear these new insights from your journey at CoStar Group. And we look forward to more of them as you, as Thanks you progress. Thanks for joining us. Right. So much fun. Thanks so much. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. Three Pillar is a digital product development and innovation company that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about Three Pillar Global and how we can help you, please visit our website at threepillarglobal.com. Lastly, remember to give us a rating and leave a review on your podcast player of choice. If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, send them over to info at threepillarglobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.